Children, you are dismissed, that you might go and be discipled, that you might delight in the supremacy of Christ, thanks to those that are taking this morning to disciple our children. Um, It's my distinct privilege to serve as a pastor uh, of this church that I love, alongside of Joey and Nick and Chris. Um, We love this church. I love this church. My family loves this church. Uh, And so next weekend is probably my favorite weekend of the year in the life of our church, where we get to recall God's past grace to us as a church. And we will covenant again together. We'll stand and recite the covenant together. Those that are members will stand and recite that covenant together, and we're going to sign it again in symbology of saying, yes, we continue to live this out. And we always have somebody that preaches that has been important to the life of this church. And so you heard uh, Joey mention Dr. Danny Aiken will be preaching uh, I encourage you to come and put your seatbelt on. When he preaches, it is an event that just takes us right through God's Word and points us to Jesus. It's a pleasure. And so let me encourage you. Let me ask a special call to the men of Restoration Church, uh, especially those covenant members of Restoration Church. Let me encourage you, exhort you to attend on Friday night and so far as you can, 7 o'clock, Washington International. Uh, Dr. Aiken will be a very big help to you. So we need more godly men to lead this church. And this will be a good event for you to be challenged. I hope that you'll come. Um, If you have some other plans, maybe they're more important. I don't know. Come talk to me about it, and I'll I'll have a plan for your life, and I'll let you know what it is. Um, I hope you'll attend that, the the marriage retreat next Saturday, and then, of course, on Sunday. And let me encourage you, community group leaders, especially community group leaders, uh, let me encourage you to take some time this week to pray for the events of this weekend, that the Lord would use it to unite our church. We've been seeing that in the book of Philippians, how important that is. So this will be a special event to do that. Let me encourage you to do that. And so uh, we are continuing on in our book uh, of Philippians. We are, I think this will be the ninth sermon. We will finish the, book of, uh, f- finish the first chapter of Philippians, Lord willing. Um, we'll make it through this sermon if Jesus doesn't come back. Um, so we've been seeing here this, this, uh, throughout this series this idea of Paul wanting to see his joy made complete in the unity of the church inside their delight in the supremacy of Christ and his gospel. And this morning we come to a passage in verse 28 and thir- down to 30 where we're going to see uh, a passage that is both full of joy and full of pain. So what God is going to tell us this morning is that insofar as we strive together as one, advancing the faith of the gospel as a congregation, we will run into opponents and they will bring us harm. And we are going to be exhorted this morning that as we do, we should not fear in anything. And that we should suffer well and do it for the sake of Christ. Fear not, suffer well, Do it for the sake of Christ. Tough words. Hard words. But good words to gospel-loving churches. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, as we consider this passage, we are mindful that these are hard words. If we were being honest, some of us would rather not consider them. And that's why we need courage, God. Correct us, direct us, and train us in righteousness that we might be a great, beautiful army of Christ advancing the love of Christ to our nations, to the nations and to our neighbors. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We looked at verse 27 last week. 
I'm going to read that on down to verse 30. We'll be dealing with 28 to 30. Here it goes. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Two points of admonition this morning, brothers and sisters in the faith. Two points of admonition. First one is this. Do not fear in the advance of the gospel. Do not fear in the advance of the gospel. So we find in this passage something that should be absent in our lives as Christians and something that should be present. And here we find in verse 28, the first thing that should be absent is fear. Now we are told in other passages, of course, that we should fear the Lord. But here, the fear that we are told needs to be absent is towards our opponents. So we should fear the Lord in that we should not be casual about Him. We should shudder at the prospect of His infinite holiness, but we should be comforted in Christ. But we who are in Christ should not fear the opponents of Christ in His gospel. Do not fear anything in the advance of the gospel. That couldn't be, that couldn't be any clearer there in verse 28. So Paul has moved away from his passive instruction towards the church to now being very direct to the church. Verse 27, we have that command, let your life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you claim to be changed by the gospel, then your life should appear as though it's been changed by the gospel. Not some other message. So the glory of Christ then, brothers and sisters, should flow from our mouths, flow from our hands. The power of the gospel should move us gladly towards others also who claim the gospel so that we can confidently stand firm, striving side by side as one advancing that gospel to others. And so gospel people do life with other gospel people and the unity of that gospel that brought them together. And out of love for the gospel, they press the gospel into others as they work together. So the image again here is likened to that iconic image of Napoleonic armies of men standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, advancing as one with the banner of the gospel flapping in the breeze. And that banner indicating everything about what makes us most uh, encouraged. It's our aim. The banner of the gospel is our aim. It's our goal. It's our life. It's our love. It's the source of our confidence. It's our joy. It's our home. And as that happens, as we advance together as one with the banner of the gospel flapping in the breeze, marching towards the enemies of the gospel, Paul instructs us that we are going to run into opponents. It's going to happen. And so we need to ask the question there of verse 28, why is Paul so confident that we will run into opponents? How can Paul be so confident that we're going to run into opponents as we advance the gospel? Two reasons. First one, Jesus told us we would. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. John 15, that's what he said. The king of glory was crucified by the world. Therefore, as we press into the world, we should expect to likewise face opponents since it nailed our Savior to a cross of wood. 
Secondly, look down there in verse 30. You note the word conflict there. Recall this conflict that they saw. He's saying they saw. The church at Philippi was planted or was started in the face of conflict from opponents to the gospel. If we remember that back to Acts chapter 16. Remember, Paul preaches the gospel. right? Lydia, her household gets saved. Remember after that, they call the, the uh, spirit of divination out of the slave girl. And then there's that big fight there that they had. Paul's thrown into prison. right? He's beaten. He and Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and thrown into prison. So they know that. They're reminded of that. So he can be confident because he knows not only did Christ say it, but they've seen it. We can imagine even as this letter is being lit, written or actually being read to the Philippian church, we can imagine the jailer sitting over in the corner remembering when he saw Paul and Silas singing those hymns behind saying, yes, I remember that conflict. And so we are reminded of the words also of the Apostle John that says, to be friends with the world is to be enemies with God. And so we are not of this world, brothers and sisters. And so Paul instructs the church, do not fear anything about those opponents. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Strive together as one in the message of the gospel and all of the gospel's implications. March together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do not fear anything that your opponents will bring up when you meet them. Don't fear anything. Now, maybe a question you are asking at this point then is, what gives Paul so much confidence that we shouldn't be frightened? We need to know the answer to that, right? I mean, it'd be one thing if I said to you, hey, jump out of this plane, don't be scared, and you didn't have a parachute. You'd have reason to be scared, right? But Paul has a great deal of confidence that we ought not be frightened. And what is that? What's the ground of Paul's confidence that we should be fearless in advancing the gospel? What's the ground of it? Well, the first reason, there's two things he gives us, two things in this passage that help us see that we should not be fearless in advancing the gospel. The first reason why we should not be frightened by our opponents in the advance of the gospel is because their opposition to the gospel signals or evidences that they lose. The mere evidence of someone opposing the gospel, Paul says, evidence is they lose. That's the point of Paul. So opposing the gospel opposes victory. That's the first reason why. So Paul's point there, look at that verse, verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of the opponents, but of your salvation, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we also find in another letter, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, to not, he says, not be ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. And so if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save, then the gospel is the power of God to save in all things. So the gospel is that we who were in Christ were once enemies of Christ. We, remember, were once opponents of Christ. And God rescued us by grace through faith in the sufficient atoning sacrifice of Christ. And in His resurrection, He saved us. He saved us and not only made us friends, but made us sons and daughters. And so the memberships, think about this point just for a second. The membership of every gospel-believing church is made up of people that were once opponents to the gospel, but are now friends and sons and daughters of God. So therefore, since God has shown that the gospel is more potent than our opponents, we have nothing to fear. 
nothing to fear. The greatest weapon our opponents have is to try and cause us to suffer, be shamed, or worse, to kill us. That's their greatest weapon. And the whole message of the gospel is that death loses at the cross. It's the whole gospel. That's the, most, that's the only reason we exist. Death loses. And that's our opponent's greatest weapon. Listen to Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 15. It talks about this. It's referencing Christ. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. Note the same language. Might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the point here is that the worst thing our opponents can do is kill us. And therefore, while we may have feared death before, since Christ's death was our, our death, since His resurrection was our resurrection, then Jesus defeated our enemy's greatest, oppos- greatest uh, opposition to us. He's defeated the greatest weapon then. Therefore, we no longer have to fear that weapon and are free then to fight and live for the glory of Christ in all things without any fear. Because He defeated it. And so, Jesus, if I can be trite about something important for a moment, Jesus has done the Star Wars equivalent of destroying the dark empire, the evil empire's greatest weapon of the Death Star. He destroyed it. It's done. There's nothing of it left, though. Nothing of it left. And so we that are, have allegiance to Christ, the sort of rebel alliance of sorts, we can rejoice and fight with no fear. It's been destroyed. Even if they attempt to kill us. Even if they do kill us. What does Paul say? Just a few sentences in front of this. Even if they kill us, that is far better. That's what Paul says. Because we are ushered into the presence of Christ. And that is far better. So we can say, we can agree with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. They can't touch us. Our opponents. It's a win-win for us. It's a lose-lose for them that oppose the gospel. Either way, we win. Our opponents lose. Therefore, we have nothing to lose, nothing to fear. So when we strive together with one spirit, with the one mind of Christ, we can move confidently, having nothing to fear, since all of our opposition will be destroyed. Now, when I say that, I realize that for some of you, maybe a handful of you, maybe numerous ones of you in this congregation this morning, that describes you. You oppose the gospel. And this is a sobering reality for you as you see this in the text. If you are currently standing against the gospel, if you're currently opposing the gospel, the clear promise of this passage is that that signals your eternal destruction. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I don't need to explain to you, friend, the implications of the wrath of God. But if you are here and you are not trusting Christ and His atoning sacrifice for your sin, That means, friend, you have no substitute. 
And you are left to bear the penalty of the wrath of God for sin for yourself. You have to bear it yourself since you have no substitute. Which means that you will be left to an eternity of hell in opposition to the love of God. Hard words. But I realize also there are people in this room that are not knowingly opposing the gospel. I'm sure that there are some of you that are here that are not knowingly opposing the gospel, but still might be outside and an opposer of the gospel. But did you notice back in John 3.36 when I read that, did you notice that when Jesus said, whoever believes has eternal life, but whoever does not obey, did you notice that word? Notice, not obey the Son shall not see life. That's what Jesus said. See, Jesus knew that people would come along and claim to believe intellectually the truths of the gospel so as to get the benefits of the gospel, but they would not go on to obey the gospel, which is why he uses that language. So his words, Jesus' words, are meant to clarify that you cannot just believe the facts of the gospel. You also have to obey the gospel. Now, let me... Make this a little more clear. You have to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in verse 27. If you're not convinced of that truth, that that's what he's saying, let me read a verse. I think it makes it really clear. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 says this. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he's talking about his second coming, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. There's the wrath. Who does he inflict it on? On those who do not know God, And on those who, here it is, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So the question is, do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? But also the question is, do you obey the gospel of Christ? Living out a manner, a life, manner, and a worthy of the gospel. There were plenty of people, plenty of people in Jesus' day. He told us, he told us there would be plenty of people in our even day that would claim Christ but not obey this gospel. Now, let me be clear about something here. Obeying the gospel does not mean that we have to earn the gospel. It's just that our obedience evidences our salvation. Living worthy. It's the same thing, the same point Paul's making in verse 27. This is what Paul is after in the entire first chapter of Philippians. Paul is calling Christians to stand together in one spirit, one mind. It's easy to just add Jesus. It's another thing to deny yourself and live for him. To disobey natural urges and to take up supernatural ones. How do you know where you are in this? How can you be sure whether or not you are opposing the gospel or are saved by the gospel? Listen, Here's how you can know. Move closer into gospel-loving churches and see if you are of one spirit and one mind. And then you'll know. You'll have a more objective reality as to what the truth is in your life. And if you find the closer you move into gospel-loving churches that you still are opposing the gospel in some way, shape, or form, then friend, let me encourage you, let me plead with you to turn from that sin and to find satisfaction in Christ. His life is better doesn't mean that it's hard. He's going to promise us to suffer, but it's better than anything else that you're trying to preserve. So I plead with you to trust Jesus. And if you'd like to talk about that, you let me know. But I need to give you the second reason why we need not fear in the advancement of the gospel. 
Remember, the first reason was that Christ has defeated the most potent weapon of our opponents. Therefore, if they oppose the gospel, they signal their destruction. That was the first reason. But the other reason is that their opponents not only signal their destruction insofar as we maintain and live for the glory of Christ, it signals our victory. That's the other reason why we can be fearless. In other words, if we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm together in that gospel, working together as one, advancing the faith, not fearing our opponents, maintaining a happy allegiance to Christ, we signal that we have been saved. You see that there in verse 28? Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So that word this there, you see that word this in verse 28? That verse is talking about all the stuff he just mentioned in verse 27. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel, all those implications. So if you do that, if you, if you, do, you advance the gospel towards others, you run into opposition, you suffer in some manner, maintaining allegiance to Christ, you signal, you reveal, you illustrate, you indicate your own salvation and that from God. It indicates you're the real thing. Now, we find this oftentimes in soldiers before they go off to battle. They, we read their letters and their diaries and things like this. And many of them, strangely, are anticipating battle. They want quickly to get into battle. And you find this oftentimes. It's very frequent. The reason why they want to get into the battle is because they want to see what they're made of. They want to see if they really have allegiance for their cause of their country or their comrades or whatever it is they're fighting for. They want to see what they're really made of. And by going into the fight, they know that the fight is going to reveal that. It's interesting how some of the men that maybe appear to be the most courageous, when the bullets start flying, they're the first ones to run. And it's interesting, too, on the other side, some of the people that seem to be the most cowardly in the midst of battles, they're the first They actually find that they actually go on to be the most courageous. Either way, the dangerous rage of the battlefield manifested what they treasured the most. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ by not being immobilized by the fear that our opponents bring you, you then evidence that God really has saved you. And that's a reason enough to be fearless. To keep going, just to see God's grace come out in you. And I realize that some of you have had that happen in the life of this church. Some of you have had this happen. You, you leaned into the awkward. You spoke in the difficult situations. You spoke the gospel. You spoke the ethic of the gospel, the way of the kingdom. And you were ridiculed. You were walked out on. Or you were shut out of the family. Be encouraged, brother, sister. Be encouraged. Your salvation has been evidenced. You're the real thing. God has saved you. That should encourage you to be all the more fearless. It's, you know, it's interesting, too, on the backside of those battles, after you read those soldiers, what they find is some of them come out, and you should read their, their diaries and their letters. They're, they're so excited. They say, like, I, I actually did it. I stood in there, bullets flying, people going down, and I kept marching, kept shooting. And they're so excited that they actually were the real thing. And in the same way, you who did not fear anything, but instead lean into the fight of faith, advance the gospel, reveal that God has saved you, and has made you for himself. And so keep going. Don't be afraid. Bring others along with you. For the rest of us that have not yet faced the opponents of the gospel, do not be frightened. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. 
So we as a congregation need to learn to be more interested in other people's relationship with God than we are interested in other people's relationship with us. That's what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are more interested in the glory of Christ in others than we are interested in our own comfort, our own convenience, our own personal ambitions towards those other people. Our passion for the magnification of the glory of Christ dispels our fears of the darkness of physical pain, emotional pains, or, or awkwardness. Our jealousies to see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation bow to the King of glory and exalt Him who is of infinite worth. That's got to be greater in us than our material uh, fears of, uh, of losing uh, jobs and things like that and not paying bills. We've got to have a greater, greater exaltation of Christ than the preservation of our own lives. Trusting Him in it. That He'll get us out. Brothers and sisters, love the acceptance of Christ more than the acceptance of a world that is turned against Christ. Christ laid His life down for you. The world didn't. Do not fear conversations on subjects that are increasingly accepted by the majority. Remember, Jesus told us that we were going to be a people of the narrow way. And most of the people were going into a broad way that leads to destruction. Remember that. Engage those conversations. And so whether it be more popular topics that are in the uh, conversation, national conversation, things like homosexuality, abortion, gender, uh, sex before marriage, pornography, or the less talked about yet also affirmed topics of materialism, violence in movies, laziness, gossip, complaining. Don't fear to engage in these conversations about these kinds of things because the gospel has a word for them all. And believe the power of the gospel in that. Now, to be clear, do not be superficial and do not be mean-spirited. Because if so, you're not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember Paul's prayer for the church. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. May love abound more and more. We speak up for the glory of Christ out of love. Out of love. Love for Christ. Love for that neighbor of whom we're pleading with. Now listen, I understand. They may not receive it as love. I get that. You can't control that though. You can control by the power of your spirit, by the power of the spirit, you can control your intentions with them. You can't control how they receive it. We move forward in a loving manner, worthy of the gospel, jealous for God's glory in them and for their good. We cannot control, or at least we cannot speak up for the places, or we, we can speak up for the places and times where the gospel is being trampled. And we ought not fear when we do. As Paul said to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Not a spirit of fear. So lean into those conversations, trusting the power of the gospel to overcome any opposition and do it in love. And as we do, and maintain the one spirit and one mind of the gospel, championing the glory of Christ over cultural acceptance, receiving opposition, be encouraged that salvation is being evidenced in your life. And destruction is being evidenced in theirs. And hopes that maybe they'll turn to Jesus when they see that. Do not fear anything in the advance of the gospel. Fear should be absent, but also we see next, suffering should be present. Fear should be absent in our lives. 
suffering should be present. So secondly, brothers, sisters, receive suffering as a gift and the advance of the gospel. First off, do not fear anything in the advance of the gospel. Secondly, receive suffering as a gift in the advance of the gospel. Now, when I say that, some of you may have thought I got that wrong. I maybe misspoke there. Suffering is a gift? No, 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 no. No, that's right. Take a look. Paul further explains what this fearless, unified advance of the gospel looks like. Notice that word for in verse 29. For, we could read that word as saying, because, strive for the faith of the gospel, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, not fearing in anything for or because it has been granted to you. The you, there's second person plural, that's church. For it has been granted to you, church, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Now this may shock some of you to know. First of all, just the truth of it may shock you. But did you know that word granted there is the same word we get our word grace. See what he's saying? He's saying that we who are redeemed not only are saved by grace, we also suffer by grace. Salvation is an unmerited, free, and gracious gift from God to sinners. We receive it with glad hearts. We celebrate, we celebrate that salvation regularly, right? We celebrate it in baptism. We celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the grace of God and salvation in our songs and in our prayers and in our testimonies. In our teachings, our meditations, we celebrate it. And in the same category, Paul says also that we receive suffering as a gracious gift from God as well when we advance the gospel together as one. See, we talk, we love, we love as Christians, we love to talk about grace. We should. We love to talk about grace. We love to sing about grace. We love to preach grace, pray grace. We love to identify evidences of grace. Right? We love to name our churches grace. We love to name our children grace, right? My niece's middle name is Karis, which is the same word here, grace. But are we prepared to think the same way in the face of suffering for Christ? Are we prepared to move the gospel with so much love, so much courage, So much unity as a congregation that as a result, we get hit in the mouth hard and we come out of it and say, praise the Lord. That I was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name. Are we prepared to celebrate that kind of grace? Will we agree with Job who was encouraged by his wife to curse God in light of his suffering and die? Will we agree with him when he responded by saying, shall we receive good from the Lord and not accept adversity? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will we receive and rejoice as Peter and the apostles did in Acts 5 when after suffering for the gospel, they rejoiced because, quote, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. The name, it actually says. Will we not only rejoice in considering the streets of gold that we will one day walk, but will we rejoice when we have to walk the road of rejection that gets us there? Blessed are you, Jesus said. Blessed are you. We could say happy are you when others revile you 
persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Jesus was able to say that, brothers, sisters, because it informed his life and his mission. As Jesus hung on the cross in untold pain and agony and suffering, it was accused of him that he could not save himself. He could save others, but he couldn't save himself, they said. So Jesus was reviled. Jesus was persecuted. He had all kinds of evil hurled on him falsely. The reality is, friends, the truth is, Jesus could have saved himself, but he knew that if he did that, he could not save us. So for the joy set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. Christ has experienced what he has commanded. Let that encourage you towards obedience. Christ's life was in the shape of a grace-filled cross. And so must our lives be in the shape of a cross as well. It must always be that way because it has always been that way. Never has it been, the Christian life, never has it been in the shape of ease and comfort, only receiving, only benefiting. The core of the gospel has been to give and not just receive. At the cost of His Son, God gave. At the cost of our own comfort and acceptance by the world, maybe even our own lives in this world, we give Christ to the world by laying our own lives down. Taking on the pain that comes from our opponents when we receive the grace of the Gospel in that suffering. So the domesticated Gospel that promises all the benefits of Christ without the pain of sacrificially giving is a far cry from the Jesus we read about on the pages of Scripture. Jesus said, he who loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now let me pause a moment here and answer the question of why suffering for the sake of the gospel would be seen as a grace. Let me answer that question very briefly. I think at least three reasons. What is it about suffering as a result of speaking on behalf of the Savior that would cause Paul to say to the church in Philippian in the, in Philippi to be seen as a grace. Why can it be considered good? One, because suffering for Christ is used by God to grow our humility. We all need humility, don't we? In our sin, we can be proud people. But God hates the proud and He loves the humble. God will sometimes grace us with suffering as we live for the gospel in order to humble us and help us to rely solely upon him. Think about that passage in 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul says that they were basically given a sentence almost unto death, but this was, not, this was so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God. God-fueled humility, brothers and sisters, is good for us. Two, suffering for Christ is used by God to grow our holiness. Suffering for Christ has a way of refining us, doesn't it? We don't like to admit that out loud, do we? I don't. Chipping away at the things that lead us to more accurately reflect the greatness of who God is. And so like an artist chisels away and makes a beautiful sculpture, 
God graces us with his chisel in order to make us out into the radiant picture of his glorious beauty. I know what a privilege it is to be used like that. Thirdly, suffering for Christ is used by God to grow our hope. Grow our hope. I don't know about you, but when I chase down all of my fears, most all of them are grounded in some way, shape, or form of having this be my home. And I get fearful when I feel like it's getting taken away. And so God, in his infinite kindness, uses suffering to try to get that out of our lives. If I'm in Christ, this is not my home. At least not as it presently is. Christ will return, he'll make this earth right again. But as it presently is, this is not my home. My home is in Christ. Your home is in Christ. Christians, suffering for the sake of Christ reminds us of that. It makes us long to get home. I can remember my godly grandmother sitting in a hospital bed for years, crying out to the Lord as she suffered just to take her home. Now, that example does not indicate her suffering for the sake of Christ, but nevertheless, it proves the point. Suffering causes us to hope for home. So suffering cultivates humility, holiness, hope, and of course, it has a way, according to Colossians, of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which means... Until all the fold comes in, we must press into the fight that appear people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there at the foot of the throne. Now, if you have little to no interest in being conformed to the image of Christ, those three reasons aren't very intoxicating to you. But friend, you should know, whatever that thing is that you're trying to protect, again, I've said it before, I'll say it again, whatever that thing is, it's not as good as Christ. Turn and trust Him, follow Him. I assure you, He is better than anything else you may be living for. Now, some of you may be saying, Nathan, I want to live for the glory of Christ. I want to advance the gospel, but I don't know what I will do when I face suffering as a result. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Well, my first point, I think Paul's first point to you would be to say, don't fear anything. Right? That's what he said. Don't fear anything as a result of what the gospel teaches you. But secondly, more practically, let me address that question. Don't focus on suffering. Focus on the Savior and the infinite reward of His glory. Focus there. Let your request, let your attention be there. It is the device of the evil one to do whatever he can to get your eyes off of the Savior of infinite glory and on to anything else but especially suffering. If he can get your eyes to focus on suffering, then you won't be aggressive with the gospel. We are not supposed to pursue suffering. Hear me. We are not supposed to pursue suffering. We are told to pursue Christ and pursue Christ in others. Suffering is said to only come as a response to pursuing Christ. You need not concern yourself, beloved, with the moments of suffering. You need only concern yourself with a deep satisfaction in Christ. And the more that you love Him, the more you speak of Him to others, yes, suffering will come. We have that promise. But listen to what Jesus responds to you in that moment when suffering comes. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17 to 20. They, the opponents, will deliver you, Christians, over to court to flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, here it comes. Same words from Jesus and Paul. 
Do not be anxious. We could say, do not fear about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Hallelujah. Right? So like now I'm sitting there going, oh no, if this happens, somebody takes my son and they say to me, deny Jesus or I will kill him. Now I'm standing here now. I can't do that. I can't. But Jesus just promised us, promised me, and now I'm going to tell you what to say. You don't worry about that right now. Trust me, Nathan. Just press in. When it gets hard, I'm going to give you the right words to say. And again, this is what we see even in real life in battles. Guys find out as the bullets start flying around. They can do this. Most importantly, we who are in Christ can do this because we are empowered by a great spirit that never, ever fails. God not only gives us grace for salvation and grace in advancing the news of that salvation, He even promises to give us appropriate words, the grace of appropriate words at the appropriate time. And that time, for a lot of us, is not now. But a day is coming when it will be. You need not concern yourself on how you will act, on what you will say. Jesus promises to take care of that at the right time. Your role is to bend the knee to Him and find Him as your all in all. Speak of His glory and His infinite worth and His kindness and His beauty to others. Make disciples. Teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded you. Press in. Don't think about the day of your suffering. Think about the day of your beholding Christ. And let that fuel you towards your neighbors and the nations with great joy. And when the time comes for you to suffer, God will give you the words to say. You just keep your gaze on Him. He'll take care of the rest. That's exactly what Paul has been trying to model in the Philippian church. As these guys who no doubt have been suffering in the church there, he's trying to help them see that. That to live as Christ, die as gain. Whether he lives or whether he dies, he only wants to magnify the infinite worth of Christ. And so that's why we go. That's why we suffer. That's why we're not afraid to suffer even. Because we want to magnify Christ because we want to do it not for our sake but for his sake you see that phrase there two times of verse 29 for his sake see Paul is not answering why circumstantial suffering comes it's not what's in view here he's not addressing why freak car accidents occur he's not at, he's not answering why we get cancer or why our dreams get stolen away that's not what this passage is about This is about a local church being united in the gospel, pressing the gospel out of love into the world, doing it, there it is, not for our sake, but for His sake. And if you're wondering why this hasn't happened much to you, well, I can't be, I can't really answer that. I don't know exactly. Maybe, maybe, maybe our culture steals the grace of suffering for the gospel away from us because they see many lifestyle is possible. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe it's because you have been fearless or you have been fearful. You've not advanced that gospel regularly in love and in kindness, pressing it in regularly into conversations. Maybe that's why you haven't seen suffering. Maybe this happens more than you actually realize in the lives of other people. You just haven't taken the time to ask them about it. Again, I, when I was working through this sermon, I could think of half a dozen ways that this has happened just in our small little church. It's happening. Just be open and talk about the struggles we have in advancing the Gospels. The more we do, the more stories we'll have to share. 
And there are stories if we take the time to ask about them and then celebrate them. But remember, we do not celebrate ourselves. We celebrate Christ for His sake, right? We celebrate because Christ was magnified in those moments. We live in a manner worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel as one fearless in the face of our enemies, knowing that when we suffer, we see the evidence of our salvation, the radiance of God's glory, and the destruction also of our enemies. And so, Restoration Church, fear not. Fear not. Suffer well. And do it for His sake. And Christ will be magnified. Trust Him to do this. Do not trust yourself. Keep your gaze on Him. And don't forget, beloved, don't miss this. We do this together. You're not alone. Jesus promised you in Matthew 28 that you wouldn't be alone. And also this passage is teaching us that the church should be side by side. You're not alone. When you suffer, you've got other people to suffer with you. We bear one another's burdens, right? We rejoice when others are obedient. You're not alone. If, you get, if you're worried about something, bring somebody with you. But press in. Be courageous. And love Christ. He is great. Let's pray and ask Him for help. We are oftentimes so full of fear, Lord. We pray your forgiveness. Make us bold. Make us bold. And make us not bold, Father, with a spirit of meanness. Make us bold with a spirit of love. Jealous for your glory and your good and those around us. And God, make us bold even in our own church. Speak the gospel into our own church. Maybe we have to suffer inside of the life of our own church. May we love you more than we love ourselves. And may we believe, God, that there's nothing to fear out there. And that we can suffer as a gift of your grace for the sake of Christ. Reminded that the shape of the Christian life is in the shape of the cross and also in the shape of an empty tomb that leads to a forever and delightful home with you. Oh God, may we be jealous for your glory in Cleveland, Heights, Cleveland Park, Friendship Heights, Tenley Town, Cathedral Heights, American University, AU Park, Bethesda, DuPont Circle, Woodley Park. May we be jealous for your glory. And may we be willing to advance and suffer if need be in order that you would be honored. Ready us, God. Spin us out for the sake of your glory. And may we trust you in the fight. Amen. Invite the music team to come up. You stand. And let's sing in response to this powerful message. I'm going to read that passage again as you stand. All at once, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you, Restoration Church, are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. Salvation comes from God. For it has been granted, graced to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, 
but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's sing.